We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey everyone, it's Kirk. I'm doing things a little bit differently today and bringing you a special episode from a podcast I've been enjoying and I think you will too. It's called Started From The Bottom. Host Justin Richmond interviews people with humble origins who managed to scale the summit of success. People who grew up on the outside, people of color, people who weren't part of the old boys network. Justin recently sat down with Sent Marshall, CEO of the Dallas Mavericks herself. As you all likely know, Sent made NBA history when she became the first black woman to lead an NBA team. In this episode, she takes Justin on her life's journey, surviving domestic violence, a 40-year career at AT&T, and getting a call from Mark Cuban to take over the Mavs. Okay, here's Sent and Justin. I hope you enjoy their conversation as much as I did. If you do, you can hear more from the Starting from the Bottom pod wherever you get your podcasts. Pushkin. Welcome back to Starter from the Bottom, a show where we dig into the lives of people who navigated non-traditional paths to success. Today, I'm sharing my conversation with the first black female CEO in NBA history, Cynthia Sint Marshall. You'll get to hear just how this Bay Area force worked her way up from an abusive household in the projects, turning a full ride to UC Berkeley, then beating cancer at the height of her career. Sint and I both went to Berkeley at different times. It's actually there where I first heard of her when she came to speak to the Black Student Union. It was interesting to find out through our conversation that we had similar experiences at Berkeley. I'm forever grateful, of course, to the school for taking a chance on me, but both Sint and I had a tough time feeling like part of a larger community without many other Black kids being around on campus. We'll talk about that, plus her ascent at AT&T, and more. Let's get into it with Sint. You came in to a whole job mm-hmm. that was a whole lot of work. I yes. mean, Mark Cuban, owner yes. of the Mavs, yes. called you directly, yes. knew he needed you. You yes. are the right person to come in here. And, and you know, and, I didn't and, know him when he called me. He, I, you didn't know him. That's all right. I know him now. <laughs> you can't tell your husband. I know you can't him tell now. Your <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. How are you approaching being the CEO of the of, of the Mavericks, given kind of kind of what was happening before you got here? Okay. And, and there were no people of color in the executive Correct. We had 10 white men sitting around the table in my first meeting, and then they brought in two women who were not a part of the permanent leadership team. So now our leadership team, executive leadership team, is 50% women and 50% people of color. Wow. 
And when you go down through the tables, we have a diverse employee body. So I feel great about done that. Some work. And so that's important to me. But, but equally as important is to have an inclusive culture. So not just have these people in their great jobs and doing great things. And, you know, our employee body looks like the community that we serve and the fans that we serve, but that people are included, that we actually embrace people. So representation is important, but then also just the whole culture and the climate. That's what we focus on every day. And then, of course, we want to make money. Somebody told me when I first got here about the financials and Mark Cuban is a billionaire and if he needs to write a check back to the company, he will. I'm like, well, that's not a good attitude to have because I come from a place 36 years where it was about profit and loss and Mark Cuban gets to keep his money that he has. We should be making money to give back to this organization. I see why he called you. <laughs> I mean, we should, be, we should be making money. Okay, Mark Cuban should not be funding this every year. And so we just had a very good, a very good year. Uh, COVID hit us hard, but we still made money. Uh, but we just had a very good record-setting, unprecedented year. So I feel good about that. I truly don't take the credit. I mean, the Lord blessed me to be able to bring people together, and we get it done. If I lost the people around that table, we would not be as successful as we are. If my boss didn't have the faith that he has in us, uh, and if he didn't actually slow down long enough to teach me the business of basketball, which he promised he would do. He knew I didn't know a thing about basketball, okay? And he's done that. So we're, just, we're all in this really together. We have our season ticket holders and our fans and then our players who are absolutely phenomenal and they are men of character and, and they you, love and, and the you community. you got a cow bear running, you got running the team. Don't play. Come Jason on, J. Kidd. Okay, Let's go. go. <laughs> Oakland in the house. Yeah, Come Oakland on. in the house. And then, of course, our general manager, Nico Harrison. So... Uh, and then Mike Finley, the assistant general manager. We have a good team yeah. on and off the court. And so I'm blessed to be able to be the face of it a lot, but they're, they're doing it. I mean, I'm in there too now. I work hard, but we all do. We all do. And so we're all going to leave it better than we found it. I'm so glad you came out here to see me. I am so me. glad that you agreed to do it and that oh, you brought over here. I mean, it's oh. great to do. It's fun. And, and it's you fun. know, I, I, um, we have a Berkeley connection. Yes. I went to Berkeley undergrad and eventually to grad school there. Awesome. When I was in college and I was at Berkeley, yeah. I kind of thought that was it. Like I made it. Like it's over. Right. What I didn't realize is just like a whole journey ahead and I didn't really know how to navigate that. Yeah, so it's the beginning of that journey. It's the, it's beginning the beginning of the journey. You step on that campus and you see Sather Gate and the big Campanile and you're like, okay, this is big stuff here. I yeah. made it. Yeah. And, and everyone's telling you, you made it. You made it. Okay. You know that. You like, congratulations. Yeah. You did it. You're at Berkeley, yeah. number one public institution yeah. in the world, all that, right? And it's just the beginning of the journey. Well, let's talk about how you got to Berkeley. What was it like growing up in Richmond, California? Oh, I love 94804. Okay, so my parents left Birmingham, Alabama. So uh, you know your civil rights history. So the church that was bombed in Birmingham uh, in 1963, the 16th Street Baptist Church, okay, that was one of my mother's churches, okay, right there in her neighborhood, okay? And that always sticks out to me because four girls lost their lives that day. My mother has four girls and two boys, okay? So I think about those girls every day. Just think about them uh, and the sacrifice that they had to make. Or my parents could have left been your there. Friends, oh, absolutely could have yeah. been. I mean, absolutely could have been. So, but my parents left there because they wanted us to. Uh, they didn't want us to grow up in the Jim Crow segregated South. So, moved to uh, 
the Bay Area, Richmond, California. My dad had a sister and a brother-in-law there. And so we landed in the projects, okay? And I describe it as a good childhood, even though there was a lot of stuff that happened, yeah. okay? Because a lot of things happen to all of us. It's just how you grow up. Right. Um, but we were the vic- victims of domestic violence. I mean, I, I saw a lot. I saw my mom being abused. Uh, my father broke my nose when I was 16 years old. I just, I just saw a lot of stuff happen. How, Actually, 15. How, how, do you, how are you processing this as a, at the time that it's happening? Uh, my mother was a woman of faith, and so we just always felt like the Lord would take care of us. I mean, for example, the summer my father left us, and it was a bl- bloody, ugly uh, summer where we had to flee our house that summer. But my mother's prayer was that we would make it back home before school started. And we made it back home. There was one mattress in the house for me and my younger sister to sleep on. My father had taken everything, and eventually, you know, he started to bring, you know, send it back. But my mother told us that day, because we were going crazy. I ran track. Our trophies were gone. I mean, it, it's amazing the things you care about at that age. Like, yeah, it was like, yeah. where are my trophies? Yeah. <laughs> okay, and then, you know, school is getting ready to start. We don't have any clothes. And I'll never forget what my mother said. She said, everybody be quiet. And it was just dead silence. She said, all I want is peace of mind. The Lord will provide. And he did, literally. People start bringing us stuff. The furniture started to show up again. I went to school, but I went to school with a brace on my nose from where my father had broken my nose that summer. But my mother told me to go to school. Just keep going. And three teachers and a principal. I'll never forget this. Three teachers and a principal embraced me, wanted to know what was going on. I mean, at this point, I'm a junior, so they know me. Talked to my mom, and they just got me involved in all kind of activities, and the rest is history. Miss Irvin, Mr. Rotelli, Mr. Chapman, and Mr. Parrots just decided, okay, this girl is going to college. We know her mom. We know the desires of her mom, and we're going to embrace her. And my zip code didn't matter. I got a great public education. They embraced me, and I ended up with five full scholarships to the college of my choice. So you, of course, get into school your choice, full ride. No yes. problem. I mean, Berkeley is an interesting place. It is. Because, it is. I, I, you know, everyone. I think everyone thinks it's like a bastion of racial and ethnic harmony and but the truth of it is and i went there 30 40 years after you uh-huh. it's not diverse it's not yeah. it's not it's yeah. not i mean people think that yeah. it's the san francisco bay area it's very diverse it's very liberal i mean all of that yeah and when i went to berkeley blacks made up one percent of the school there were 300 of us uh, and I think there are about 30,000 students. I mean, we made one, uh, 1% of the school. Uh, I was the only African-American in my sorority, one of the first black cheerleaders. Uh, it, it just was not, it wasn't diverse. And it, it still is not as diverse as it should be as it relates to blacks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did you handle that? I just did what I normally did. I mean, like when I went out for, to be a cheerleader, I was a cheerleader in high school. My high school was about... I mean, you saw as many Asians, as many white, as many blacks, yeah. some Hispanics in my high school, right? So very mixed. Yeah. And then when I got to Berkeley, it was very different. Right. But I didn't change. So the things I wanted to do, if I saw an activity I wanted to participate in, a class I wanted to take, I mean, I just did what I normally would do. I didn't get scared because of the fact that there weren't a whole lot of people who looked like me. There weren't a lot of professors that looked like me. And so I didn't realize I was one of the first black cheerleaders until somebody said that to me, until people are coming up and putting their hands in my afro and saying, we're so glad to have you as a cheerleader, and we're so glad to have you out there. It looks good to see you there. We need more black kids out there. And I'm like, 
okay. <laughs> did you did you have a sense of what you wanted to do while you were there? Like, did you have an aim? Say, I want to get out of here and do this. Okay, so I came in as an engineering major, and by the end of that year, I didn't I didn't like it. Getting good grades, but I didn't like it. Right. I took one business class and said, I think I want to change my major. And I took one organizational behavior class, and I said, mm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to work for a big company and lead people and all that. And so I, I knew from that first class, I want to go work in a corporation, and I want to lead large groups of people. And so I remember when I uh, was recruited, and I had 13 job offers. And I said, I'm going to take the one that pays me the most money because I want to help my family, you know, get out of Easter Hill. And then I'm going to take the one that lets me be the boss at 21 years old. (laughs) At 21 years old, I'm going to come in and lead people because I want to serve people. So what positions were you applying for? Oh, so I had uh, Wells Fargo, so kind of an assistant manager at a bank, uh, Chevron. I mean, just your typical kind of, I mean, but cross industries, though. So right. the, the, the energy, the oil and gas uh, industry, energy companies, uh, banks, uh, retail companies, and then AT&T was there. Uh, so just a variety. And I was just looking at who was going to pay me the most money. I mean, but I want to supervise people. So that was my criteria. Is it typical straight out of college to apply for like a job as like assistant man, like a management job? Is that? I guess it was for me because I mean, they had those jobs available yeah, right. and, and, and what AT&T had, uh, Pacific Bell, they had a fast track management program. So they'd bring you in in a supervisory job and just help you kind of advance. And the goal was to get you to director by five years. I mean, so they wanted people who had proven kind of leadership experience, you know, leading clubs, whatever, however you did that at that age. And then they would help you grow as a leader. So I came in in our fast track program, hardly any blacks in that program. And it was quite an experience. It was quite an experience. What did you learn? Okay, so what I learned is that uh, there's some people who are truly invested in you. They want you to do well. I had, I had a, my second boss, Norm McBride. Uh, he's in the Bay Area. Uh, I remember one time when he said, Cindy, he, he called me Cindy back then because I also learned that people call you what they want to call you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I would say I am Scent. Yeah. Okay, my name is Cynthia, but I go by Scent. Well, people never heard of Scent, but he'd call me Cindy because he just couldn't get with the Scent thing. And he said, Cindy... What are you going to do in this company? So this is my second job, right? He goes, what are you going to do in this company? And ironically, my job was a network engineer. Okay, because they wanted to promote me into my boss's job in operator services. By that point, I had gotten like all this input, even from my own operators. Since since this company is big, it's a technical company, go and learn this company. Because you want to know this company as you start to to go up. So I, I turned down that promotion to be... My boss. I turned down that job and took a lateral to go to the network engineering department. At that time, it was telecommunications, right? The industry has changed a lot. But at that time, I did need to know our network. I needed to know how these phone calls were being made. I needed to understand the network underneath and behind it all. And so I took a lateral to the network engineering department, which was so funny to me because I spent all this time kicking and screaming. I didn't want to be an engineer, right? Right. And so my boss, the engineering manager, came up to me and he goes, Cindy, what are you going to do in this company? What's your next job? What's your vision? What's your vision? What do you want to do? I said something to him that was so stupid. Okay, but I'm 23 years old. I said it, so I can admit it now. Okay. I looked at him and I said, Mr. McBride, I had my head down with all my 
demand and capacity charts. I'm trying to figure out how to network the call flow and make sure that we got enough capacity and all that. And so I put my head up and I said, Mr. McBride, uh, my job is to do my current job and to deliver and I'm going to do it well. I said, and your job is to figure out my next job. So I'm going to leave it to you. How stupid is that? Like, is that stupid? <laughs> How stupid is that, right? And so, but I really thought that. Right. I, I didn't know any better. You had no idea. I didn't yeah. know any better. I was 23 years old. I didn't know any better, right? And so he just looked at me. Thank God he did, though. This white man, okay, totally invested in me. And he said, oh, Cindy, mm, mm, mm. come on back here with me. And so he took me back to his big engineering manager office, and he had all these whiteboards and easel sheets and all that. And that man spent two hours showing me the different departments of the company, what they do, how it all hangs together. Uh, wow. He looked at my skill set, what he thought would be a good path for me. I mean, he spent two hours. Wow. Like, who does that? And he says, okay, so, Cindy, let's start thinking about the next kind of job you need to have. You need something where you can see the big picture. He laid out, like, my next three jobs based on what he knew about me. He says, so this is how... This works. And you got to have somebody to help you do this, but then it's your decision. And so as I was leaving his office, he said, Cindy, don't ever put your career in somebody else's hands. He says, you have to own it. There will be people who will invest in you, and then there will be some people who are not invested in you. You know, you have to watch out for those people as well. But you have to own it. And I walked out of his office with a plan. A couple days later, he came by and he goes, Cindy... Where are you going, girl? Where are you going in this company? What are you going to do with your career? And I said, Mr. McBride, I, what I want to do, I want to have a job with the big picture of the company. I, and so I just like rail off. He goes, we got it. Is that cool? <laughs> That's so amazing. Is that amazing? I so love fun. Norm McBride. I got to find him. I gotta, he's got to be in his 90s or something now. I got to wow. find him. Is that beautiful? So lucky that you said what you said to him and not somebody else. I mean, because you really did. I thought that. So, yeah. I thought I'm going to work hard because results matter. Right. Results matter. Right. You have to deliver the goods, right. okay? But that's not all that matters because you can deliver the results and all that, but if nobody's invested in you and if you don't know how to navigate the terrain, yeah. if, if you're just sitting there because, you know, you're the black person or you're the black woman, but nobody is truly telling you the culture and including you and helping you understand what the rules are and all that, you're just there. Right. And before you know it, 20 years have passed or five years have passed and you're unhappy and you leave. Yeah, I have done that uh, exercise that I told you Norm McBride did for me, I've done that with a lot of people. Amazing. I've done it with a lot of people. What else did you learn at AT&T? Oh, man, I learned a lot at AT&T. 30, 36 years. 36 years. 36 years, okay? I learned how to be an effective leader and a servant leader, which is what I am. I serve people. And my three L's is if I want to be really effective, I need to do three things. I need to listen to the people learn from the people, and love the people. Truly listen, not just hear them, but listen to what they're saying and what they're not saying, which is what I did when I came here to the Mavs, one-on-ones right. with every single employee, right. just listening to them and trying to understand who are these people that I need to serve. Now, a lot of people might say, well, okay, you're gonna, you, 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 know, you get in a position where you need to go and you kind of need to like triage, like what's going on here and figure things out. And okay, but if I go, go start talking to everybody, Everyone's going to have different grievances. Everyone's going to want right. different things. And you want all that. You want all that because it's a that. recipe. I mean, you're, you're, try, you're trying to bake a cake. You don't just bake it with the eggs. Okay? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, you you, you got to have 
All of it. I mean, and like I make sweet potato pies, okay? So I need my sweet potatoes. I need, I mean. Oh, well, I want to try that, by the way. By the way. <laughs> They're famous, okay? They're famous. But I don't just say, okay, well, I got the sweet potatoes, so now I can make my pies. Right. No, I got to have the butter. I got to have the eggs. I got to have the sugar. I got to have the nutmeg. I got to have the cinnamon. And yeah, and, and yeah, the nutmeg and cinnamon, that's only like two tablespoons. But that's what you really taste, okay? If right. it's missing, you know it's missing. Right. So everybody brings something different. So you got to hear all of that. I have 200 people here. We have to know these people. We got to understand. Like I, I asked the people when I got here, I said, okay, I would start out by saying, how long have you been? Give me your whole, give me your whole life story. And undoubtedly, they would say something like, well, this is my seventh season at the Mavs. And I said, were you born here? Like, were you born here in this building? Were you born on the court at the Mavs? I want the whole life story. So then I'd make them go all the way back because I want to know the story. Just like I started with you about being born in Birmingham. And here's what I learned in that process. So many people in this organization, they literally chose to have a career in sports. Like very few did somebody like call them or they showed up to help with a crisis or whatever. Right. They chose a long time ago to have a career in sports. I was so emotional by the time I interviewed all these people. I mean, like I was crying. Right. And I called in the two women who had, you know, come here with me. And I said, okay, so just like we chose to have a career in communications, these people chose to have a career in sports. Like some of these people were sports management majors in college. I've never even heard of that. Okay. Yeah. They've invested like their lives getting ready for this. This is their life. That's why authenticity is one of our values. That's important to us. And so I often say the people, and I've said this for years, the people who get up out of bed in the morning, the issues they have, the baggage they have, the backgrounds they have, the cultural attributes they have, all of that. Those are the people we should want to walk into our doors every day as employers. We don't want them to get up and go into a phone booth, change out of who they are, and put on a big cape with an M on their chest for Mavericks or a T on their chest for AT&T and come in and be the people we want them to be. We want the person who got up out of bed in the morning. Wow. That's who I want to walk in in the morning or show up on the screen because that authenticity gives us creativity. It gives us innovation. It helps us understand different cultures. It helps us tap into different market segments. I don't want people going in and putting a cape on with an M on it because then we're all the same. When we come back, Sint Marshall talks about how getting people to perform is the mark of a good leader and how community-focused businesses make more money. We're back with Sint Marshall. Do you have a strategy for how to how to get your ideas across like do you you know how how are you when you when you go into a place how are you looking to implement okay yourself okay so i'm a i'm naturally a positive person i'm naturally an optimistic person and i'm a person that believes in people and so i approach it that way i approach it very in a very positive manner and try to get people to understand what i think needs to happen now in a leadership job i have a bigger picture Right. And so I have to do that with my team members sometime. And they, they'll tell me what they think. And I said, okay, well, you give it to me from where you sit, from your vantage point, and I'll give it to you from where I sit. And every now and then, I just got to make the decision and we got to go. Yeah. But usually is bringing people together. Because I think it's about knowing what your mission and your goal is. If your mission is to get the best out of people 
and to get them to perform for the sake of the share owners. At the end of the day, you're running a business. Yeah. It's about profit and loss. Yeah. And you get to do good on top of all of that. Okay. Mm. A company does well by doing good. And so you get a chance to reach out to the community and do all that. But you got to make money in order to be able to do that. And so there's a way to get people, to engage people, and to get them to perform. Make an important point. I mean, you know, doing good is a thing that you want to do, yes. but it's, when it comes to, it's down to, it's down to dollars and cents at the end of the day. You need to make money. That's like, that's the goal. Right. And you could, you can actually make more money. I, I, I've seen it. I mean, I've lived it where you could actually even make more money by taking care of more people well, see, and gonna... by doing good in the world. Because in fact, I just had an example. I'll give you a perfect example. We have an organization. I won't mention who they are. Big sponsor of ours. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fabulous, actually a fabulous business model they have, right? And so our sponsorship guy asked me, he says, I need you to come to this meeting. The sponsor, this company, they want you in the meeting because it's important to them that they connect with you and all that. So I get to the meeting. The CEO of the company, he looks at me and he says, we're looking at all the things that you and the organization, all the things you guys are doing in the community. We want to be a part of that. We're all about uh, single mothers. We're all about, so he rattled off kind of their whole agenda. When you guys do aligns with what we're doing and we're seeing you out there and and I am blessed that I get to be the face a lot. I mean, we have fabulous people all over the organization, but a lot of times I get to be the face. So the people think it's me, but it's it's everybody. And so he says, we want to have a relationship with the Mavs because of St. Marshall and the things that you guys are doing. Now, I know that's him saying because of the Mavs. And because of our agenda, including Mark Cuban and everybody else, because right. this organization had a community focus before I got here, yeah. we just elevated it. My boss said, go. Okay. Right. And so we just elevated it, responded to the George Floyd incident, responded to COVID. I mean, we just took our game up. We have a whole social justice agenda called MAFS Take Action. Uh, we are not playing about social justice. So we're doing a lot and people recognize that. And because of that, they want to do business with us. Right. We have two sponsors that came on board, TIA and Coca-Cola. They actually said, we want to sponsor. We want to be a sponsor for Mavs Take Action. Wow. That's crazy because wow. we're doing Mavs Take Action anyway. But now people want to partner with us. We're making more money because people are seeing what we're doing and they want to partner with us. So by putting people first, you feel like more money can be made. There's, there can be more money brought to the table. Oh, by- absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of people view it as, you know, that those are conflicting ideas. No. When you hear people say a company does well by doing good, it's the truth. And I saw that with AT&T. I saw us bring in a lot of different customers and partners because of the things that we were doing in the community, because of our focus with employee resource groups and uh, diversity, equity, inclusion. Supplier diversity is is a good example I like to always use. You actually can show where you are spending less, where your purchasing spend is less when you have a diverse group of suppliers, but your quality has not lessened at all. I've seen that. I've seen, I saw it at AT&T, and we are experiencing it right now at the Mavs. We just hit uh, this week, like 31% of our spend uh, is going, our purchasing spend is going to minority women, disabled veteran business owners. Uh, and we set, we set that target out. We said we, we want to uh, impact and influence and be a good, uh, uh, we want to do good for those businesses, especially coming out of COVID, because a lot of those businesses were struggling. Of course, right. And so our purchasing spend is down, but our product is even better wow. because of doing business. Who wouldn't want that? 
right. doing business with these diverse vendors. There is a bottom line dollars and cents equation to focusing on diversity, equity, and inclusion, philanthropy, and all that. It is very, very real. The diversity dividend is real. The return on investment and reaching out to communities and doing well and living up to your corporate social responsibility is real. You make more money. There's, there's another idea, I'll say, floating around people my age, a little mm-hmm. younger, a little older, perhaps. It'd be interesting to ask you about this, mm-hmm. this, this idea of, again, what's good for my company isn't necessarily good for me, that those are opposing ideas, that not finding the right work-life balance and having that skill tip too much towards work is yeah. a detriment to you as a person. This idea of maybe quiet quitting, right? Like right. how important is work really when, when ultimately it doesn't add to my life? And, and, and so maybe I'm just going to do, how do you approach <gasps> work-life balance? And- okay, I have, oh, Lord have mercy. I have so many thoughts on that, okay? First of all, I personally, so this is Cynthia Janelle Marshall here, okay? There is no way in the world my kids and my family is going to be right here at the same level as my job. That's not happening. Okay, my family will always be up there. Right. And my job will always be there. What I try to do is what I call integration. There's sometimes when I got to focus more on what I'm doing here. The season is getting ready to start and all that. And I'm not going to be at home uh, with the folks that are hanging around in my house. Like, like my daughter today. Mom, I'm coming over to have lunch. Well, that's great. You're going to eat with that. Because yeah. I'm on my way out. I'm pulling out of the driveway right now. Okay. And I'm not going to just stop and like have lunch with her. Okay. Yeah. I'm hanging out with you, okay? That was already planned, right? But I just integrate it. You just do yeah. what you have to do. And, and not everybody's blessed to be able to do that where they can just kind of like pick and choose. But here's yeah. what you can do. You can identify your crystal balls and the rubber balls. And I wish okay, I had... Explain that, and I, and I wish I had my actual example. Uh, imagine a crystal ball. You drop it. It shatters. Mm-hmm. It never comes back. I mean, you drop it. It's over, okay? Rubber balls... They bounce back. I can throw it to you. You'll catch it. Maybe you'll do something with it. I can throw it over there to Aaron. Maybe, maybe, maybe she'll drop maybe it. Maybe she'll drop it. I can throw it over here. Maybe to David. Maybe it, he'll throw it back. Okay, right. who knows? Okay? But it's not urgent right now. You got time to fool with all that. Your crystal is urgent. You can't drop it. And so what I try to do on a regular basis is say, what is crystal in my life right now that I cannot drop? What is rubber? And I'll give you a good example. When AT&T named me the president of AT&T in North Carolina to go and run the North Carolina and then eventually also the Virginia operation, uh, it's a big job, okay? And since it was close to Washington, D.C., they would ask me to come to Washington, D.C. periodically to help them with policymakers and, and big issues. And so one time they asked me if I could come and actually be there all week. And I said, okay, I got a great team here in North Carolina. They can carry the day. I can be there all week except for Wednesday afternoon. I can't be there on Wednesday afternoon. And so I said, because it's my son's first high school swimming. And so they said, okay, great. So I get there Monday morning, we're in a meeting. They're laying out all the policymakers we have to meet with and all the committee heads and the big wigs. The meetings are on Wednesday afternoon. And I said, I told you guys, I can't be here Wednesday afternoon. They're like, simp, but these people are important, blah, blah. I said, no, 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 no. I told you guys it was my son's first high school swimming. That's a crystal ball. It's not his second high school swim meet. It's not his third. It's his first high school swim meet in a new school in a new state. I'm not dropping this. So I'm going to have the meetings. I need me to have on Monday and Tuesday. 
and then I am flying home so I can be at his swim meet, and then I'm going to fly right back, and then we can finish out. So you're going to have to move these people. So at first they start laughing. They're like, no, it's a swim meet. I'm like, it's not just a swim meet. It's a crystal ball. It's not like a swim practice. Right. It's crystal ball. Okay. So, of course, I went home, right? And my boy looked up, and I'm convinced to this day he won that individual medley race because his mama was in the stands. He looked up for his daddy and his sister, and I was up there smiling. That was important to me. And then I went right back, okay? And a lot of times, I'm not there. A lot of times, I'm not at activities. I'm not there and all that. But I know what's important to me, and I know what's crystal. And I ask people to stop and do that because most things are rubber, Okay. A lot of things just actually don't matter. They'll come back later. You can pick them up later. Somebody else will get them. But what is crystal? So I ask people to do that. And if people have things that are crystal in their life and they're working for an employer and they're somewhere where they just cannot handle, uh, the employer won't allow them to handle what's crystal, they need to reassess. They need to truly reassess. Is this the place I'm supposed to be? Because you can't live like that. And I truly believe that there are places when you know who you are, you know what your values are, there's a place for you. Somebody is waiting for you. Now, you're not going to do anything crazy where you're just going to walk out and then you're going to get home and say, okay, how am I going to buy bread and cheese? Yeah. Okay, like I can't eat. You're not going to do anything like that. Yeah. But it's time to start thinking about what you're going to do next. Because you need, you need to be, you don't have to be smiling and running in cheery mm-hmm. every day. Yeah. But you shouldn't be walking in crying and you shouldn't be leaving crying and your heart beating fast and you can barely breathe. You can't work like that. Yeah. Right. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's just a matter of talking to your employer and telling them, okay, so here's what's not working for me. Our employees do that. And then if it just ends up not working for you, then you have to start making uh, some changes. If the employer won't make changes, then you have to start making changes. When we return, Dallas Mavericks CEO, Sint Marshall, tells us why speaking up in the workplace is important and how she learned to pay attention to her whole job and not just the parts she liked. We're back with Sint Marshall. You've also experienced a lot of personal tragedy mm-hmm. in your life. Yes. As you're ascending. Yes. And just for people who don't know, I mean, miscarriages. Yeah, four second trimester miscarriages. So I had to like deliver all these babies, you know, have them on me, sign the death, print the foot, all that. Okay, so four, and I almost died a couple, few times. So four second trimester miscarriages, a daughter who was born four months prematurely, who died at six and a half months old. Yeah. Um, Husband who. Special uh, K. Special K. Oh, you did your homework. Yes, uh, August 21st was uh, the date that she uh, passed away. Um, And then I had a husband, uh, my husband, he's still my husband, 39 39 years. Uh, But he ended up with brain damage. Um, And so uh, they said he would never walk or talk again. And so he is walking and talking again, okay? Um, And so uh, just, you just kind of go through, you you just, you get through it though. But but how, how how do you cancer as well? I mean, oh uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, I forgot about the cancer battle. Okay. Yes. Stage three colon cancer. They don't think I'm going to be here. It's like, come on now. Okay. We all have problems. Yes. Most of our problems. Aren't life or death. Aren't like your problems. Right. Right. (laughs) I mean, you've been through it. I've had life and death problems. How do you. How do you allow yourself to still care about work and, and find it important? And okay, so I'll give you the example. When my daughter died, 
I relied on work. That actually, I mean, I relied on work almost to a fault because that's how I actually became a workaholic. I actually had a pretty decent schedule where I was working my little hours, 8 to 10, and then I'd go home. After my daughter died, I just went full-blown 12, 15, 16-hour days because that was a distraction Seven for me. But I needed it. I needed that distraction until one of my employees called it out and said, okay, long enough. Because now we're all working those hours too. Right. Long enough. So now let's get a handle on it. Let's see if you need therapy. What do you need to do now? Because you have decided that this job. One of your employees said that to you. One of my employees walked in my office, Carmen Cooper. She walked in my office one day and she goes, okay, Sam, we need to talk. And there were like three other employees outside of her office. So I guess they had all been talking. And so I, cause I asked them to all come in and they said, oh, no, no, Carmen's coming in. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Carmen, Carmen got the sign. And they said, no, no, Carmen's coming in. I'm like, okay. So Carmen comes in, she closes the door. And she says, boss, we need to talk. I said, what? She says, um, we're all grieving the loss of Special K. Obviously, we're not grieving the loss like you're grieving it, okay? We've never had to bury our kids. But we're all grieving it too. You decided that the way you're going to handle it is to just try to ignore it and just dig into work, okay? So from, from the minute we all left the funeral that Friday until now, it's been all work. Our hours have doubled. I mean, she just laid it all out. She says, because obviously that's what you need to do, what you think you need to do to get through it. She says, it's been going on a few months now, and it needs to stop. You need to breathe, and you need to let us go home and breathe. It's out of hand now. I mean, she just flat, she yeah. called me on it. Yeah. And I said, no, no, girl, because we got this going on, we got that going on. She said, we, we've always had that going on. But we didn't have to attack it at the pace that we're attacking it now. We're attacking it at the pace that we're attacking it now because you're putting all your energy and emotion into this because that's how you're grieving. Wow. And it's affecting all of us. So, number one, yes, we are concerned about our work schedules. But more importantly, we are concerned about you. We think it's unhealthy. And so we need to all talk about it. So then she opened up the door and the other ones came in. And then we just all cried, and they were right, and we just kind of all dealt with it. It, it. it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And did you okay. start to? Oh yeah, we backed up. Back up. We had to back up. Okay. I mean, they were right. I mean, they were absolutely right, and the quality was still great. It was even better. We were just like joined together at that point because they called it out. That's why. The speak up culture is really important to me and being able to walk in your boss's office and talk to them is so important because sometimes people will see things that you don't see. And yeah. I am just a workaholic by nature. I won't be in a job that I don't love. Yeah. But every now and then you could just go too far with just pouring everything into it. And you need somebody to kind of just say, stop. Like I just told my team members that people need to try to get their vacation time in. Yeah. The schedule is out. The season is coming up. Come October 22nd, we're going to be in it until we win it all into. Okay? <laughs> right, right. Hey. So get your time in. So, so we, and, and when you're going through things, sometimes you need other people. The people who are close to you, work people are close to you. You spend so much time with them. They can help you see what's going on. They can give you advice and all that. And so. And, and that's something that also speaks to. I mean, that goes back to, again, like you making sure other people are taken care of. Well, yes. Right. Then begets people. Feeling comfortable and going in respectfully kind of. It's a ripple effect. And it doesn't you. always happen. I mean, you yeah, know, sure. we'll experience losses and things happen. And then you'll say, what happened there? And you'll think, 
ooh, I think we could have like avoided that loss, or I think we could, you know, were we there for that person? I mean, so every now and you'll, what, you'll miss what, something. What would you say is one of your biggest missteps in business if you had to look back? Oh man, I know. It's all been pretty charming, but if oh you- no, I know this one. I mean, I I love the question when they say, "Did anything ever like not work for you?" Oh yes, I could give you a few examples, but this one in particular, and I'll try to make it quick. Uh, it was back when I got my first big my big director job. I mean, I had like a small one before then. And so I was over like all the installation and maintenance crews and like thousands of people. Yeah. So I said, I'm getting to know everybody. I got to be out there. I got to know what the technicians do. I got to know what the inside maintenance administrators do. I just got to like, because I didn't really know this area of the business, right? So in order to learn this business, I said, I got to be out there with the people. Okay. I went to pole climbing school. I mean, all <laughs> that. I interacted yeah. with the union. I mean, the works, right? All right. And then I got totally out of balance because when you're a leader, there's a whole job that has to be done. There's kind of like the paperwork and the process and the audits and the reviews. There's stuff you have to do as a leader, stuff that you have to have your eye on. You have to run your business. You got to pay attention to the details. You don't have to be in the weeds with your people, let them do their jobs. But there are just certain things as a leader I have to look at. So reports I have to look at, certain things I need to do. And so I used to have this model that was as ridiculous as what I told Norm McBride, okay? I used to have this model that says I do my my people work by day and my paperwork by night, meaning I'd be out in the field with the people. I'm going to get to know these people. I'm a hands-on leader. I love these people. I got to listen to them, learn from all that, right? And then I would get around to all this other stuff on my desk, the paperwork and stuff. I do that at night. I take that home. And so sometimes I take it home and I work long hours and I'd get it done. And sometimes I'm like, I'm just too tired. I'm exhausted. Well, this one night I'm actually looking at a report and I found some anomalies in the report. And it actually was somebody actually engaged in some unethical activity. Mm. And I kept looking. I said, something's not right. And I'm a, I'm a numbers person, right? And I said, these numbers aren't adding up. So then I go in the next day and I ask for the previous month's report. Then I asked for the month before that. So then I went back quite a few months, and the anomaly is there. Now, I didn't see it. You know why I didn't see it? Because I was out there doing my people work by day and my paperwork by night if I could get to it. This particular night, I focused on it. Previous months, I had not focused on it. Yeah. I missed it. Like, I flat out missed it. Yeah. So then, of course, I got to raise the flag. And so I got to raise the flag. I got to do the investigation. I got to do all this. And so we uncover everything. And so I'm feeling pretty good about myself because I found the problem. Well, should I have really been feeling good about myself? No, because I should have found it a long time ago. And that's what my bosses had to tell me. Like, since this is great, but like you weren't paying attention. Yeah. And so then I was cutting up and just like, oh, I found it. I was paying attention and blah, 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 blah. And it actually took me months. It took me months to actually accept accountability for my role in what had happened. And it truly came down to not doing the whole job, focusing on the pieces that I liked or the pieces that I felt were important, even if I didn't like it, okay, the pieces that I felt were important. Well, at that level, it's all important, but you have to set priorities and you have to figure out how to do that whole job because I know there's a whole job to do and there's nobody else to do my whole job except me. And so I give that advice a lot. Do the whole job. Know what that whole job is. Understand when you get in a new big position like that, what is the scope of this job? What has to be done in this job? What do you think you need to do to be effective? And then do it. 
and not just get sucked up in the fun stuff or the stuff you like or the stuff that somebody else thinks is a priority because you know there's a whole job to be done. And when you find out that there are some negative consequences for not doing that whole job, there's nobody to blame but yourself. Right. I learned it the hard way. You have a hell of a whole job right now. Ooh, I love my job. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes, yes. of an NBA team, the Dallas Mavericks. Sent Marshall, thank you so much. It's like as, as, as incredible as it was to read your book, which, and then there's so much more in there that we, you know, we, could, we couldn't get to. I could talk to you for hours. But to have the pleasure of sitting with you and thank feeling you. your spirit, oh. it, was, it was even better than I could have imagined. Thank, thank you so you. much. I appreciate it. Thank you for you. coming in here. Thank you for flying out just to like talk to me. I'm feeling pretty special right now. I'm going to do it again. Okay, do it again. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Sint. Sint Marshall, y'all. I got done talking with her and literally felt like I had just went to the best version of church imaginable. Her advice is so solid and also simple. I find myself repeating her crystal ball, rubber ball litmus test. And I've been thinking about her a lot this entire school year as I figured out how to prioritize work and also my kids' schedule. Her book, You've Been Chosen, Thriving Through the Unexpected, is everything this conversation was and more. In fact, it's the only book I could think of that's made me cry both times I've read it. Started from the Bottoms, produced by David Ja, edited by Keisha Williams, engineered by Ben Tolliday, booked by Laura Morgan, with production help from Leah Rose. We're executive produced by Jacob Goldstein, who's not all up in the videos. Our theme music's by Ben Tolliday and David Ja, featuring Anthony Aggs and Savannah Joe Lack. We're a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like our show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. I'm Justin Richmond.